Sometimes you really don't need the strongest resume to end up with your dream job, at least when it comes to fighting in a cage. You might need to be more qualified in the real world. In MMA though, you could be a member of a weak division desperate for title challengers for a champion who will seemingly never be defeated and has beaten just about everybody else but you. You might have a special relationship with a champion that rockets you forward, or you just might be huge hype and take your place at the top by riding that momentum of your early success. Chicken salad, baby. Whatever the case, today that's what we'll be exploring. Fighters that ended up with major championships who barely had to do anything or beat anybody of note in order to get that initial chance at gold. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are the 10 champs with the weakest records. Before we get started, a quick note, we're not going to be counting any of the early era of the sport. This list is more about modern opportunities at world titles, so essentially Zufa era and on from there. Alright, so let's talk about number 10, Juliana Pena. Now, on the merits of the record alone, Pena's journey isn't unimpressive. She did, after all, defeat three title challengers and a former champion before getting that fateful fight with Amanda Nunes at UFC 269, where she would take the title. But where Pena's record suffers, and the reason she made this list, is because there's a complete lack of any momentum on her way to said title challenge. She entered the UFC with a record of 4-2 after winning tough season 18, but then immediately suffered a catastrophic knee injury that would see her sidelined for 16 months. The only other person that's out there finishing girls like I am is Ronda, so it makes sense to me and I feel like that's the direction that my career needs to go in. In 2015, Pena would score two wins, including a decision over future title challenger Jessica I. Following a nine-month absence, she scored her most impressive win, a decision over Kat Zingano, coming off her loss to Ronda Rousey. Next, Juliana would get subbed by Valentina Shevchenko, no shame there at all, of course. She had a kiddo and took the next two and a half years off before returning to defeat Nico Montano in her only other UFC fight, besides that flyweight title win. Another 14 months off because of an injury, and then when she did come back, GDR made her go sleepy night-night. But she rebounded with a submission win over former title challenger Sarah McMahon, who had lost two of her last three, finally earning her title shot in a division that most felt had been thoroughly run through by Nunes. Number 9. Joanna Njacek She has one of the fastest UFC debut to championship journeys in history, and is a future Hall of Famer, and rightfully so. But her MMA record prior to defeating Carla Esparza to earn the strawweight title was kind of Joanna underwhelming, if you know what I mean. Can you give it to just pronounce your name exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. It's typical uh, Polish. Jędrzejczyk. Uh, now, of course, it should be noted that Jacek came into MMA in 2012 after having had a full-on kickboxing and Muay Thai career with over 30 fights. She would work her first five career MMA bouts on the regional scene in Poland with a pit stop in Moscow, going unbeaten with two stoppages, including a rear-naked choke of Lily Kazik, her only career submission win. Next, Joanna Prospect would find herself in a bout with a friend of the channel, Rosie Sexton, in jolly old London town, where she would earn a second-round KO on her way to making her UFC debut. JJ would score 30-27s on two judges' cards on her way to a victory over Juliana Lima on the early prelims of UFC on Fox 12, and then narrowly defeat Claudia Gedalia via split decision on the prelims of UFC on Fox 13 to earn her a Sparza title challenge, in part due to a real lack of contenders at the time. All's well that ends well, though. Number 8. BJ Penn Okay, yes, there are some good wins here, don't get me wrong, but BJ still went from six total career victories to welterweight champion after defeating Matt Hughes at UFC 46 in a shot 
shocking upset, his third title challenge in the promotion at that point. Just six wins into his career, it's insane. Baby J was of course a jiu-jitsu prodigy and came into his first MMA bout, which took place in the UFC, to some decent hype which went through the fucking ionosphere when he won three in a row via first round knockout. The hype train carried him to a lightweight title challenge against Jens Pulver, one he would lose to the surprise of everyone. But just two wins later against Paul Creighton and Matt Sarah, BJ would again fight for the lightweight title, this time in vacant form, going to a split draw and a rematch with Uno. Penn hopped over to K1 real quick to defeat Takanori Gomi, you know, no big deal, leading to his fateful return to take on Mr. Hughes at UFC 46. Three title fights after just nine pro bouts, lost one, tied one, won one. Is it the worst resume on this list? Obviously not, it's not number one, but it's certainly in the top ten, hence why you're hearing about it right now. You know what, let's just move on. Number seven, Frank Mir. Heavyweight has been a notoriously shallow division for most of its existence in the UFC, which is kind of funny considering it's the first weight class that was given a title, but when you consider that prior to Stipe Miocic, the longest anybody held the belt was for two defenses, the parody in the division where 265-pound dudes are winging Christmas hams at each other's faces makes a bit more sense. Anyway, Frank Mir hadn't done a lot before he broke Tim Sylvia's arm to earn the vacant heavyweight strap at UFC 48. He came into the promotion at 2-0 at the tender age of 22. Here we go, Frank Mir. Building massive hype in his first three wins, which all came via submission. Oh my god, a heavyweight that can sub people. He was then defeated in one of the all-time great MMA upsets by Ian Freeman at UFC 38. Next, the prospect was fed a name opponent in Tank Abbott, who he would dispatch in 45 seconds via me. And then he had a pair of fights with Wes Sims. The first one he won because of a DQ face stomping, and the second he got legit via second round knockout. At 7-1, the Frankster met up with the Timster and took UFC gold. Yeah! It's a good night, huh? Number six, Matt Sarah. Oh yes, it's everybody's favorite scrappy underdog from Long Island. Matt Sarah is the proud owner of one of the greatest and most exciting upsets in the history of sports, period, defeating welterweight goat GSP at UFC 69 in the very first round to take his 170-pound crown after earning his way there on the redemption season of Tough. And he was a part of that program exactly because his record was weak. So of course, he made our list. The Terra's first four fights took place in Plainview, New York, winning all via first-round sub, before Shoney Carter hit him with the spinning back fist that defined his career until tough. The rest of his UFC run prior to the Ultimate Fighter was a mixed bag. He would win four and lose three, defeating most impressively Eve Edwards at UFC 33 via majority decision. The losses were no surprise, however, as he had some stiff competition, BJ Penn, Dean Thomas, and Carl Parisian. But then came tough, and after narrowly getting past Chris Lytle in the finals, Sarah was given what was seen as a gimmick title shot, more thought of as a hook for the show than an actual challenge. Boy, was everybody in Houston in for a surprise on that night. Number five, Andre Arlovsky. Now, technically, Vampire Man won the interim heavyweight title with a record of seven and three, but because he took it from recent champ Tim Sylvia and it was later upgraded to the real deal, he still qualifies to be on here. Hey, Tim, House taste my pee pee pee, okay? All right. <laughs> Andre Arlovsky famously started his career by getting deadshotted by absolute madman Vyacheslav Datsik in what appears to be a high school lunchroom in St. Petersburg. <laughs> Following that, he would score three first-round finishes in Russia to earn a spot in the UFC and go on to win his debut, again with a first-round stop against Aaron Brink. But then Arlovsky would run into future champion Rico Rodriguez, who would knock him out, as would Pedro Hizo in his next outing. Another rebound was in order, though, three straight victories, first over Ian Freeman, then he KO'd the janitor, before finishing off Wes Cabbage, of all people, to earn his title fight, pretty much solidifying that Andre would make our list. Arlovsky would hold the title for a single official defense before 
coughing it up to Big Tim, but he would of course go on to have the longest heavyweight career in the history of mixed martial arts that is still ongoing and will never end. Number 4. Alex Pareda Yep, you knew this big scary bastard was gonna be in the video. Hell, he might even be in the thumbnail, that's up to Jason. I'll taste my... But yes, there's no secret that Alex Pereira didn't exactly have a resume that screamed UFC title challenger when he defeated Israel Adesanya in the closing minutes of their middleweight title bout at UFC 281. But it wasn't really the six wins he got before then that mattered, it was the fact that he had the defending champions number twice when they met in the kickboxing world. Pereira's first four MMA bouts happened while he was still an active kickboxer, going 3-1. and one. He lost his debut via rear naked choke. There was also a four-year gap between the third and fourth bouts, so he just kind of dabbled in MMA. But a year after he KO'd Thomas Powell at LFA 95, he was signed to the UFC in large part because of his relationship with Adesanya. After defeating Andreas Mikhailidis and Bruno Silva, he was given what was seen as a massive step up in competition. The surging Sean Strickland, who was on a six-fight win streak and had headlined in his last two fights. They have been asked more about me this whole fucking fight camp than each other. So you need to focus on the work you're doing, because trust me, he will sleep you Hey, not. Izzy, why don't you tell me what not to do? What should I do? Take a fucking nap? Sean would take an interesting approach to defending himself and end up KO'd in the first round, which was more than enough for the UFC to make the fight with Izzy. Perfect timing, as Stylebender had pretty well cleared out 185. Number 3. Jermaine Durandamy You can't really say that GDR's record prior to winning the inaugural women's featherweight title against Holly Holm at UFC 208 was exactly ironclad. You see what I did there? Because she's the iron lady. Yeah, jokes you gotta explain are the funniest ones. Durandamy was a kickboxer by trade long before she ever put on tiny MMA gloves, but in 2008 decided to dabble for the first time, getting armbarred by Vanessa Porto in under four minutes. Welcome to Mixed Martial Arts. Almost two years later, she would try again and earn a victory at Playboy Fight Night 5, which earned her a spot in the official strike force, where she would go 2-1, her only defeat at the hands of Julia Budd. From there, GDR transitioned to the UFC, defeating Julie Kedzie via split decision in her debut before Amanda Nunes TKO'd her at Fight for the Troops. Alright, 1-1 one one in the UFC, not too bad. Next, Jermaine would defeat Larissa Pacheco, and then Anna Elmos. Who is Anna Elmos? Well, she's the panda, of course. She went 3-2 before retiring in 2016, and it was that victory that set up Durandamy for her UFC gold opportunity. That and the fact that they weren't able to get Cyborg initially. Number 2. Nico Montano. I legitimately feel terrible that Nico ends up on so many of these lists, but her career is just such a fascinating anomaly that it happens to show up so often in these interesting topics about rare championship conditions. When Montano became a UFC champion, she had a professional record of 3-2. and two. Prior to the Ultimate Fighter, Nico fought for KOTC and a promotion called HD MMA, competing for titles in both and winning one in King of the Cage, her losses prior to the show being against Pam Sorensen and the Raging Panda. On Tough, Montano would be the dark horse for the entire season, surprising everyone by defeating Lauren Murphy, Montana De La Rosa, and Barb Honchak on her way to the finals and the inaugural flyweight title bout. Originally supposed to compete against Sajara Eubanks, kidney failure during her weight cut would see Roxy Mataferi step in, and after scoring a UD victory, Montano won a world title in her official UFC debut. Things didn't go so great after that, but we all know that story, so let's move on to the most ridiculously weak record any champion has ever had, number one, Brock Lesnar. Now look, I'm not even mad about it. I loved Brock. I celebrate his entire career, PEDs and all. The guy was pure entertainment from start to finish. But his record prior to that title victory over Randy Couture at UFC 91 was made of constant 
concentrated weak sauce. I mean, the guy was 2-1 when he was given that bout, and one of those wins didn't even come in the UFC. So I don't even need to bother explaining any more beyond that for you to understand why he's number one on this list, but I will continue to do so because it's fun. Lesnar, of course, had that incredible collegiate wrestling pedigree. He was a huge pro wrestling star, then up and decided one day he was sick of it. And because he's Brock Lesnar, he was like, I'll just go be in the NFL, even though I haven't played football since high school. No big deal, got signed by the Vikings, got cut by the Vikings for being a bit of a dick, then decided why not do this MMA thing that's really popular now. He had his first fight at Dynamite USA against Minsu Kim, who had no business in there even with Brock. Lesnar forced him to tap to strikes in a minute. And just like that, he was in the UFC fighting a former heavyweight champion in Frank Mir, who he was mauling until the submission specialist caught him in a knee bar. But hey, that's just how MMA goes. It was as legit a loss as any. And so next, they paired the Beast Incarnate with a ready-to-retire Heath Herring who struggled with wrestlers. That's what I call good booking. Brock smashed, and just like that, he was ready to jack the title from an undersized legend in Randy Couture, who was in his mid-40s by that point. To quote Brock himself, Party's over, Grandpa. Obviously, his huge star status was a part of his quick rise to the belt, but Minsu Kim and late career Heath Herring isn't exactly a championship resume. A massive thank you to Ben Rosette for the tunes. The guy just knows how to make a jam. Be sure to follow him on his socials. Liking and subscribing would benefit both you and me, so that's something to consider. What champ do you think has the weakest resume? Please discuss below. I always love your feedback. And thanks for watching. I'll see you again very soon in a non-threatening way.